If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about don't deal in lies or being hated don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I first heard Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, at a memorial service for a friend from high school who had been killed in a car wreck when we were in our 20s. Particularly under those circumstances, the poem hit me with tremendous force. I found it both poignant and inspiring, and I wanted to know more about it. I was astonished to discover that Kipling wrote If as a tribute to Leander Starr Jameson, the impetuous leader of a spectacularly botched illegal paramilitary operation conducted in southern Africa over the new year of 1895-96, an incident that would go down in history as the Jameson Raid. While filibustering is generally associated with Latin American misadventures, like William Walker's takeover of Nicaragua, which we covered in a previous podcast, a number of historians in recent years have classified the Jameson Raid correctly, in my view, as a classic filibuster. A military incursion into the territory of a sovereign nation with the aim of overthrowing the government of that territory to replace it with a government friendly to an imperial power or to simply annex the territory. In common with other filibustering expeditions, the Jameson Raid was characterized by faulty intelligence that promised support that failed to materialize, and botched ex execution that uh, bordered on, on farce. Leander Starr Jameson did not share the same fate as other filibusters such as William Walker or Narciso Lopez, but he was spiritual kin to them. He just had much better connections and the good fortune of surrendering to a government that couldn't, for geopolitical reasons, afford to execute him. To understand the context of the Jameson Raid, we have to roll back about 60 years to the great trek of the Boers. The Boers were the mostly Dutch-descended Afrikaner population of southern Africa that had moved into the Cape during the 17th century, and expanded out into the Eastern Cape frontier over 
the 18th and early 19th century and built a, a very hardy frontier culture based on, on hunting, largely. Um, as the British government began to assert its control in the Cape Colony in the 1830s, especially with laws designed to abolish slavery, many of these rural Afrikaner farmers known as Boers, which is just Dutch for farmers, loaded up wagons and trekked north across the Orange River and the Vaal River to establish republics that were free of British domination. The Orange Free State and the South African Republic, which is also known as the Transvaal, were rural frontier republics carved out of the veld by hunters and farmers who were highly skilled in horsemanship, marksmanship, and fieldcraft. The Boers fought the Zulu and the Ndebele in some very savage battles and paid a blood price for, for the land. Uh, the British asserted sovereignty over this land, and they actually annexed the Transvaal in 1877. That didn't sit well with the Boers, and at the very end of 1880, under the leadership of a, of a tough hunter named Paul Kruger, they rebelled, and they whipped the British Army hollow at the Battle of Majuba Hill in Natal, just over the border in, in uh, Natal from the Transvaal, in 1881. And the British pretty sensibly decided that this empty veld had nothing really worth fighting these stubborn Afrikaners over, and so they, they acquiesced to the independence of the republics, at least internally. They, they did, Britain that is, uh, insist on retaining the right to control the republic's foreign policy, such as it was. And that was largely geared towards keeping the, uh, the Germans, who were just starting to try to build an African colonial empire, from making incursions in that part of, of Africa. That probably would have been that, and the republics would have just gone on their way to develop uh, at their own pace, in their own manner, except that in 1886, gold was discovered in major quantities in the Transvaal on a, a ridge called the Witwatersrand, and still probably the biggest gold-producing area in the world. And... Immediately, the biggest gold rush in frontier history was on. And in short order, the city of Johannesburg rose right up out of the veld, and the world rushed in, just like it had through most of the 19th century in places like California and uh, in, in uh, silver strikes like Virginia City, Nevada, and Tombstone, Arizona. And uh, Joburg very quickly became a cosmopolitan city, which was much to the chagrin of the Boers, who feared being swamped by people, mostly British, but also Americans and other continental Europeans, that they called Oatlanders. The Boers were ardently religious, Calvinistic Protestants, and they were deeply offended by the typical gold rush culture, Whores, gamblers, opportunists of every stripe. But they were even more concerned about losing their political grip in their own territory. For their part, the 
Oatlanders by the 1890s saw that they actually outnumbered the Boers in the South African Republic and were tr- contributing massively to the Transvaal's coffers through taxation, but they had no rights of citizenship, particularly the right to vote. And as the Americans had asserted a little over a century before, taxation without representation is tyranny. It has to be said that the the Outlanders had some legitimate beefs with the government of Paul Kruger. Um, This wasn't an, an innocent, bucolic republic. Corruption and cronyism were were rife, and Kruger's family and close supporters enjoyed monopolies, including on concessions such as dynamite, which was vital to mining. And uh, and this level of corruption was significant enough that there was a reform effort amongst the Boers themselves. There was a uh, what they considered to be a more progressive element of the Boer Volksrad. Um, their their parliament and uh, their representative assembly. And uh, they also sought to reform and modernize the republic. The Outlanders grew increasingly restive, and it appeared that they were ripe for a revolution. At least that's what Cecil Rhodes was betting on. Now, Cecil Rhodes who is most famous now as the originator of the Rhodes Scholarship, was one of the most rich and powerful men in the world in the 1890s. He'd made a fortune consolidating the diamond diggings in Kimberley in the Northern Cape and was working on building yet another fortune in the Witzwaterrand. But Rhodes was much more than just a a run-of-the-mill robber baron of the Gilded Age. He was an imperialist visionary, and he believed ardently that the Anglo-Saxon race, as he phrased it, represented the greatest governing race in human history, and that the rule of Britannia was a great boon to the world. And he was determined to paint the map British Red from the Cape to Cairo, even if the British government itself was reluctant to act on his vision. Rhodes formed the British South Africa Company, which was a a crown-chartered company, and between 1890 and 93, through crown-sanctioned enterprise, secured the land that would become Rhodesia. This is land north of the Boer Republics, across the, the Limpopo River, and uh, his right-hand man in, in this endeavor was Leander Starr Jameson, who would actually become the administrator of British South Africa Company lands. And uh, in 1893, Jameson led a campaign that took Matabili land from its Ndebele rulers, and so that gave him a, a sense of the possibilities of a fast military campaign. Jameson was a true believer in Rhodes' vision and a gambler and a man of action above all other things, the kind of man who, in Kipling's phrase, 
could make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss. You could argue, and I would, that the pioneering or conquest of of Rhodesia was one big successful filibuster. And as with most gamblers, winning once convinced Jameson that he could win again and again. In 1895, Rhodes, who was premier of the Cape Colony, and his fellow millionaire Alfred Bate launched a Game of Thrones playing for gigantic stakes. They determined to launch a filibuster to overthrow the Kruger government of the Transvaal, the South Africa Republic, and win the world's richest gold fields for the British Empire. Jameson would lead a paramilitary force mostly made up of British South Africa Company police in support of an armed uprising of the Oatlanders in Johannesburg. The pretext for this invasion would be a rescue of these beset Outlanders, including their women and children, oppressed and under threat from armed Boers. They would, of course, welcome Jameson's paramilitaries as liberators. That was the scenario being crafted by Rhodes' agents in Joburg, including Rhodes' brother Frank, who was a military man, the American mining engineer John Hayes Hammond, and the future author of the wonderful book Jock of the Bushveld, Percy Fitzpatrick. The so-called Reform Committee provided a letter of invitation that was sent to, to Jameson and left undated so he could use it when the timing was right. The letter would serve as an answer to potential critics in the government or the international community who might attack this noble endeavor as something little different from piracy. The British colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, tacitly accepted the Rhodes plan as long as there was no overt connection to the British government, as long as the fig leaf of a rescue could be maintained, and as long as it all worked. And uh, he was looking, as governments tend to do with these sorts of operations, all the way up to the present day for a level of plausible deniability. There was a major problem. The Outlanders were not of all one mind about things. The Reform Committee, which was mostly British subjects of the ownership and professional classes, the people that had written the letter of invitation, might welcome Jameson, and presumably they would welcome the South African Republic uh, being annexed under the British flag. But the Americans and many others were not on board with a British takeover. They wanted reform, but they leaned toward a new independent republic or maybe just a reformed South African republic. And the rank-and-file working-class folk, they were there for the money, and they didn't really care much who was running the show as long as they were making their wages. And, of course, nobody consulted the uh, African workers in the mines at all. The whole scheme was predicated on a rising that would secure Johannesburg and give legitimacy to Jameson's column coming in from outside the Transvaal to help them. 
but Johannesburg wasn't ready to rise. Hammond pandered to a rowdy meeting of the Americans saying that any uprising would be under the Boer flag and he'd personally shoot anybody who tried to raise a different flag. Kruger, of course, was fully aware that something was afoot and the Reform Committee knew he knew, which gave them cold feet. In his outstanding book, Diamonds, Gold, and War, The British, the Boers, and the Making of South Africa, historian Martin Meredith notes, Rhodes and Jameson were now involved in several monumental miscalculations. One was that, having captured Matabeleland, the overthrow of Kruger's regime would be similarly straightforward. Another, that the Outlander population was ready and willing to participate actively in an uprising. And a third, that white settlers in Rhodesia would be safe from African revolt once the company police had been withdrawn to take part in a Transvaal coup. I'd add one further monumental miscalculation. Jameson thought, against all evidence, that, quote, Boer fighting qualities are the biggest bubble of the century, unquote. That was just delusional and Jameson would soon be force-fed a heavy meal of crow. Those of you who have listened to the other podcasts on filibustering will uh, recognize this kind of hubris that, uh, that went into this operation. These kinds of miscalculations uh, have plagued this kind of, of expedition throughout history. And it's, it's fascinating that the same mistakes get repeated over and over and over again. As 1895 wound down, Jameson was encamped at Pitsani, which was just across the Transvaal border to the northwest in the, uh, the British protectorate of Bechuana land, now Botswana, which Chamberlain had allowed to come under British South Africa Company control for just this purpose. Jameson had planned to invade the Transvaal with 1,500 men. He actually had in his command 400 British South Africa Company mounted police, another 120 or so Bechuanaland police were at the ready in uh, Mafeking in the Cape Colony. The troopers were very well armed. They had uh, Lee-speed bolt-action rifles. They had six Maxim machine guns, two seven-pounder mountain howitzers, and a 12-and-a-half-pound field piece. And they looked dashing as all get-out in their slouch hats and jodhpur riding pants and khaki jackets. Several British officers had actually taken leaves of absence from their commissions to join in, in this adventure. It was all very dashing late Victorian um, adventure. And it was all about to go terribly, terribly wrong. By December 29th, 1895, Jameson was wound as tight as an eight-day clock. He'd been receiving telegraph messages from Rhodes. The rising on which all of this hinged was clearly not going to happen. And Rhodes clearly wanted him to stand down. However, Rhodes had not explicitly ordered Jameson 
to stand down, and Dr. Jim was the kind of dog who relished slipping the leash. Historians differ a little bit on the possibility that that Rhodes wanted to create the impression that he had told Jameson to stand down or, or encouraged Jameson to stand down while still leaving open the possibility that he might go anyway because Rhodes knew Jameson's character and that it all might work out in the end, that Jameson might push through. I tend to think that, that Rhodes genu- genuinely wanted Jameson to stand down, but uh, simply neglected to give his longtime colleague a directive order that he knew would upset Jameson. There was glorious precedent in British military history for literally turning a blind eye to instructions to stand down, by the way. In the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801, Britain's great naval hero, Horatio Nelson, was given a signal from his fleet commander to disengage from the enemy. And Nelson clapped his his spyglass to an eye that he'd lost in earlier combat and said, I really do not see the signal. And he went on to decisively defeat the enemy. And that action shone the kind of light, exactly the kind of light that Dr. Jim wished to see himself in. If the Johannesburg reformers had developed cold feet, perhaps this gallant ride of Jameson's raiders would put some steel in their spine. Jameson would force a rising, moving in before the Boer commandos could assemble. Historian Thomas Packenham describes the scene at Pizzani like this. There could be no going back now. Jameson mounted on a black stallion, took off his hat, and there were three ringing cheers for the queen. Then they trotted out of Pizzani, followed by the African servants and the mule carts. Soon the column was engulfed in dust. Soon the column was also being closely observed by Boer patrols. The Boer military operated on a militia system. Individual men from age 16 to age 60 were expected to have their own rifle and horse and know how to use them, and they were to be called out for emergencies or for the multitude of conflicts that the republics had with native tribes. These militia units were called commandos, the units themselves, not the individuals in them. The only, um, the only professional military outfit in the South African Republic was a state's artillery contingent that was well-armed and uniformed in the style, who knows why, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Whoever formed the state's artillery probably just liked the way they looked. The British had, of course, underestimated the fighting qualities of citizen soldiers before a hundred and more years ago in North America. The lessons of Lexington and Concord do not seem to have resonated at all with Jameson. His troops failed to cut off all telegraphic communication, so the column's move out of Pizzani was relayed to the Boer capital of Pretoria immediately, and the commandos began to assemble. 
Jameson thought that his Maxim guns would protect him. They had, after all, torn up the mighty regiments of the Matabili just three years ago. But the Boers weren't going to run into the kill zone the way the Matabili Impis had. The Boers' natural military doctrine was based on long-range marksmanship. As Jameson moved into the Transvaal, the Boer commandos shadowed the column, moving in behind it and harrying its flanks. In the mining town of Krugersdorp, the Boers set up a defensive position blocking the route to Johannesburg. The raiders exchanged fire with the Boers, including lobbing artillery shells at them, but they couldn't dislodge them. And Boer fire took a toll on the troopers. Jameson's professional military aide and second-in-command, John Willoughby, ordered a frontal attack on the Boer position across marshy ground, which was a disaster. Boer rifle fire killed or wounded 30 of the troopers, and another 30 who went to ground in the marsh were captured. It was a shock to Jameson, who suddenly realized that the Boers' fighting capabilities weren't such a big bubble after all. The column deviated its route off to the southeast, trying to flank the Boers, leaving the wounded in the hands of the Boers, who, to their credit, cared for them with considerable solicitude. Jameson and his officers continued to expect, or, or hope at least, that the reformers in Johannesburg would send out a column to link up with them, but that was not going to happen. The British government explicitly repudiated Jameson and declared him an outlaw, which made it illegal for any British citizen to give him aid. And that quelled any martial spirit that might have been remaining amongst the Johannesburg reformers. A contingent of armed citizens, rather grandly dubbed Beddington's Horse, did assemble to ride out, but the Reform Committee gave strict orders that they weren't to go more than 10 miles out from Johannesburg and reconnoiter Jameson's position, which was to accomplish what nobody knows. Ultimately, they just recalled them, and so no help at all was coming for Jameson's men. An exhausting running fight ended at a farm on the Veld called Durnkop on January 2nd, 1896. Jameson's column was completely surrounded. No help was coming from Johannesburg, and there was no way that the raiders could break through the Boer encirclement. Boer fire, including by this time artillery, had killed another 16 troopers and wounded many more. At about 8 p.m., Someone borrowed a white apron from a maid at the farm and waved it overhead. Jameson and his men surrendered. Meredith describes the scene. They looked, said a Boer commandant, Pete Cronier, dirty and miserable. Some stood around weeping. Jameson, he said, trembled like a reed. On Jobert's orders, the wounded were taken to the hospital in Krugersdorp. Jameson and some 400 other raiders were carted off to prison in Pretoria. The Jameson raid was, of course, a major international incident with repercussions that were both immediate and long-term. The British government scrambled to assure Paul Kruger, that the Jameson raid was a rogue operation that they had nothing to do with, which 
wasn't quite true. However, Kruger, who certainly knew that that wasn't true, wasn't ready for a war with the British Empire just now, and he acted with a, a pretty cool head and a restrained hand. Members of the Reform Committee were jailed under a potential sentence of death for treason, but any death sentences were ultimately commuted. Jameson and his officers were shipped off to England for trial under British laws. This was a pretty canny move on Paul Kruger's part because it prevented giving the British a cause for war and gave the Boer Republic a moral high ground in the international community. He'd, uh, he'd acted with such great restraint in dealing with this invading force. British public opinion quickly got behind the raiders. They were stirred to outrage when Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany complimented Kruger on his victory and offered him military support, which Kruger said, yeah, thanks Kaiser, but no, no, we don't, we don't need that. Tensions that would explode in less than 20 years into the First World War were already building, and the Jameson Raid really kind of ended up being subsumed into this international rivalry that was growing between Great Britain and Germany, principally over naval superiority. Rhodes was forced to resign as premier of the Cape Colony, but he escaped any serious legal consequences. He was too big to take down. The British government checked Rhodes from revealing Chamberlain's involvement in this failed filibuster by threatening to revoke the BSA charter if he revealed cables that clearly implicated Chamberlain. And those cables wouldn't come to light for decades uh, after the event. Jameson's apparent grace under pressure during his trial earned Kipling's admiration, which he immortalized in the poem If, which I read at the top here. The impetuous leader was sentenced to 15 months in prison, but he was quickly pardoned. Settlers in Matabeleland paid a high price for Jameson's actions. He'd stripped Matabeleland of its police force to form his column, and they remained on ice after the surrender. The Nbele took advantage of the circumstance to rise in a major revolt against British South Africa Company rule in what became known as the Second Matabele War, which we've touched on in other podcasts. It was a terribly bloody affair. Hundreds of settlers died. But responsibility for it never really stuck to Leander Starr Jameson, who, for most of the settlers of Rhodesia remained the beloved Dr. Jim. War was averted in 1896, but it was only deferred. Jan Smuts, who would lead commandos in the Anglo-Boer War of 1899 to 1902, and then go on to lead South Africa through two world wars, said... The Jameson Raid was the real declaration of war in the great Anglo-Boer conflict. 
and that is so in spite of the four-year truce that followed. The aggressors consolidated their alliance. The defenders, on the other hand, silently and grimly prepared for the inevitable. Leander star Jameson really did fill the unforgiving moment with 60 seconds of distance run. He went on to become Prime Minister of the Cape Colony from 1904 to 1908 and was eventually made a baronet. And Sir Leander Starr Jameson died in 1917 and was eventually buried next to his patron, Cecil John Rhodes, in the Matopos Hills in Rhodesia. So that's the story of the great filibuster, the Jameson Raid, one of the more consequential filibusters in 19th century history. From here, I'm going to move on to a slightly self-indulgent project that I'm calling Once Upon a Time in Los Angeles, just for the fun of revisiting the, the town of my birth and its uh, wild, weird, and somewhat sordid frontier history. You could blame Horace Bell for that. I've been regaling our uh, Patreon page patrons with uh, readings from Horace Bell's Reminiscences of a Ranger, um, early times in Southern California. And uh, I just love that book, and it's such a delightful glimpse of, of the frontier history of Los Angeles. We don't usually think of L.A. as a frontier town, but boy, it sure was. I mean, it, it always has been, and it still is in a lot of ways. Um, and there's just a ton of, of wild stories there. Um, may expand that a little bit into some other California frontier tales. Uh, there's a rich trove there. So uh, I am busily reading or rereading John MacFarger's Eternity Street, which is about uh, frontier Los Angeles, and uh, John Bossenecker's wonderful biography of the bandit Tuberquio Vasquez, who uh, liked to hide his stolen horse herds up in a place called Chaleo Flats, where I used to camp out when I was just a little kid in the Angeles National Forest. So going to have some fun with that, and I hope you uh, will enjoy riding that trail with me. I'd like to thank our patrons. It's the support of these folks that help to keep the Frontier Partisans podcast and, and the blog going, and uh, if you're interested in jumping on board to help support Frontier Partisans, the uh, link to the Patreon page will be with the show notes for this episode need to give a particular shout out at this moment to Matthew Eilman because he uh, was inspired to pick up a copy of Reminiscences of, uh, Reminiscences of a Ranger and uh, has written a review that I'll shortly be posting on uh, FrontierPartisans.com. So it's been fun kind of, uh, of sharing that, that resource. And uh, um, so... Uh, Matthew, free live free, uh, way to go! I'm I'm glad you're enjoying that fine fine book. And uh, 
and you'll recognize some of the stories in the upcoming podcast, but hopefully we'll give them enough of a, of a twist that uh, they won't sound quite the same. But uh, anyway, thank you to the patrons, uh, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West. Christopher, you're going to enjoy these tales of Los Angeles, uh, your, your old hometown as well. Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. So when next we meet, it will be to share tales of lynchings, stagecoach robberies, horse theft, minor revolutions, all the weird, wild, and wonderful tales of frontier Los Angeles. So we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>